on Tuesdays, you know what we do. You, me, Professor K, the KC Morning Hoes, we take back America. I'm going to get right into it. This is part one of our series on FDR. Y'all, this is important. It's 2022. You know what happens in 2022. We need you in 2022. So let's take back America. My name's Hartzell, Professor K, and myself talking FDR in KC. <laughs> like that. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. I am black to the Somebody. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K, my brother, look at you in the new year of 2022. Still fresh, still radical as ever. The turtleneck, the turtleneck, my friend, I think is really popping in the new year. I want you to know that. You look fantastic. You ready to take back America, my friend? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, this year more than ever, we better start taking back America. There's no question. I woke up on the first. Yeah, it hit me, Harvey. This is a midterm year. But this is the reason why we do this, right? This is why you and I, many moons ago, way back, way back in 2021, that was an eternity ago. (laughs) The red flags are up. The sirens are being sounded. And we've got Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Harvey K. Going to try to sort through the nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, And Josh Hawley is still shaking. So listen, before we get to the subject of the month, let me just say how torn apart I was over the weekend because I felt bad for my buddy Hartzell having to suffer the defeat of the Kansas City Chiefs by the Bengals. But I have to then confess to everyone that I have a PhD from Louisiana State University and I have long been a fan, not simply of LSU, but even more recently, a big fan of the quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals, Joe Burrow. And seriously speaking, this kid, Two weeks in a row through 400 plus yards in those games. This guy is something. But having said that, I'm now going to shift into my sympathetic mode. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> These are one of those, what do they call them? It's um, teachable moments. Yeah, is that what this is? Teachable moment. Well, let's let's say that you and I still have a very good chance of seeing each other in the Super Bowl. Chiefs versus the Pack. We're 13-3, and three, the Packers. Talk about a turnaround after that first utterly disgusting 
abysmal loss to the Saints in, of all places, Jacksonville, because they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't do it in New Orleans. But on top of that, it's the fact that the Packers never do well in hot, sweaty places. And let's make it clear, given why we do this, the Chiefs and every other team should be like the Packers, publicly, community, that is, fan-owned, not owned by some corporate boss, by some rich capitalist family. It should only be owned by you, Professor Harvey K. Oh, you want me to be the rich capitalist? I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. You know what? You said it great. If we would have just been thinking of our series, our season as just our first game, or for the Chiefs, that first little stretch, you know, we would have been pretty depressed, pre-defeated. But much like our fight for solidarity, our fight to reclaim our radical history, there are going to be some bumps along the way. A couple hiccups may happen, but we are still, we are still enthused. We can still see the finish line, even though we still know we got a little bit more fighting to do. And for the purpose of taking back America, we're going to break from the usual routine of one figure each week. We're going to spend this month on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president who Biden said he was going to try to recreate that kind of presidency and has failed to do so. And I'll tell you what, once we get this posted later today or tomorrow, whenever you get this posted, I'm going to decidedly tweet this to POTUS. You know, POTUS says it's a big effing deal. This is a big FDR deal this month. <laughs> right. How about that? Right. And what we've got going, I'll explain to people, the reason we're calling it the FDR month, and we haven't delayed doing it. It just worked out this way. Listeners who, who listened in on the last couple of weeks may well remember that Hartzell played the show from it would have been 2014 that I did with Bill Moyers, who's a hero both to Hartzell and myself, where we talked for a good 20 minutes or so about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the greatest generation, and the fight for the four freedoms. Now, we're going to turn this month to FDR all the more. Why? Because this is an FDR month. At the very end of the month, January 30th, that is the anniversary of FDR's birth in 1882, right? So what would this make this, 140 years later? But more immediately, and in some ways more importantly, this Thursday, which tragically may well live in infamy for most people, January 6th, was the day on which in 1941, before the United States found itself in World War II, but the rest of the world was being torn up by the war, FDR gave a speech, a State of the Union speech, in which he projected the four freedoms, freedom of speech, of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear as the war aims should the United States go into the war. And he was basically issuing a call to arms to Americans to transform the United States into the arsenal of democracy in this very same speech. That's January 6, 1941. And I'll do my best, and Hartzell, I'm sure, will join me in doing our best from here on out to never let people forget that for all of the infamy of the insurrection, the invasion, the riot, the mobs that that invaded the Capitol, we should not forget January 6 as the day in which FDR pronounced the Four Freedoms. Within days later, three years later, January 11, 1944, FDR pronounced and projected a call for an economic bill of rights for all Americans. Now, we're going to be getting to those speeches in weeks ahead. But today, Hartzell and I agreed we should deal with a couple of speeches and a, and a little piece that FDR wrote before he was ever president, before he was even governor of New York. We're going to deal with a speech from 1912 in which we will hear FDR struggling to figure out how to proceed politically. Would it be a bourgeois direction? 
Would it be a liberal direction? Would it be a radical direction? We're hearing him working through his thinking that will only become more apparent to us when we get into the weeks ahead. But also we're going to look at a book review that FDR wrote, which has to do with the classic debate between those who wanted a Hamiltonian America and those who wanted a Jeffersonian America. We will not take sides necessarily in that debate, but it should be known that Hamilton basically was the champion of commerce, merchants, and the making of capitalism in America. And Jefferson, for all of his sins as a slaveholder, became known basically as the key founder in the question of democracy and separation of church and state, which we've addressed a little bit before. But FDR who had admiration in a certain way for both figures, will in this speech come down on the side of Jefferson, and we'll have a punchline to that when we get to it, the book review, I should say. And then in the third piece we're going to address, he asks, whither bound? Where is America going? And he makes a very fundamental point about what America needs, which he will eventually again be able to take up and pursue the answer to it when he becomes president of the United States. Let me start off by telling people something about FDR. Okay, who is this guy? Okay, everyone knows who he is, and they know he's one of the three greatest presidents in American history. But who is he? And I want to preface all the things I'm going to say with an important recognition, a fact. We are not making FDR out to be a saint, okay? There were, in my mind, any number of sins that he committed, but most significantly and critically were the sins of the late 30s and early 40s as we entered the war. First of all, he created or allowed the military officer leadership to convince him to create a Jim Crow army, a segregated army and Navy, but decidedly the Jim Crow army in which black and white troops would be segregated into different fighting units, different regiments, you know, battalions, all of that, okay? It's a Jim Crow army. Although I will also tell you that he overrode some of the officers who would have probably in their stupidity, knowing nothing of American history, would have left African-Americans out of the military altogether. So in the, in the end, one million African-Americans will have served in the army, and maybe more would have had there not been a quota on the number of African-Americans admitted. The second major sin, perhaps one of the, the worst cases of civil rights abuse in American history, was the internment of the Japanese-Americans. The removal from the West Coast of Japanese-Americans to internment camps in the West and even in the Southwest of the United States. A terrible, terrible mistake. Once again, he allowed military officers and conservative landowners and others, state of California especially, to convince him that they might represent a danger. But it actually literally empowers certain interests, corporate interests, to dispossess these folks of their farms out in California. Japanese-American internment, shameful, absolutely shameful. And third is his failure to purge the State Department of the anti-Semites who were running the State Department. And as a consequence, allow the State Department really to block the admission of greater numbers of Jewish refugees who were trying to flee Nazi Germany in 39, 40, and 41. Those are the sins that we should never forget those sins, those terribly tragic mistakes that, that he allowed to transpire. Having said that, he is actually one of the most radical and progressive presidents in American history. And the 30s, the New Deal years, saw a radical transformation in American public life and the beginnings of an all the more assertive, aggressive, and dynamic civil rights movement that will really 
take off in years to come. Okay, so let's talk about FDR, the, the young FDR. He was born in 1882 to what would well be called a Hudson River Gentry family. I want to make it clear, there were two branches of the Roosevelt family. The branch that gave birth to Teddy Roosevelt, that's if you like the Republican branch of the family, and the branch of the family that gave birth to FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And that's the Hudson River side. Teddy Roosevelt took the family out to Long Island. They're both New York State. Also, let me point out that Eleanor Roosevelt, oh yes, and I should note, Franklin Roosevelt and his elder cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, were cousins, not nephew and, 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 and uncle. Eleanor Roosevelt was the niece of Teddy Roosevelt. Eleanor and Franklin will marry. Yes, they were first cousins. <laughs> Let that be known. But I will also tell you, I, no one should hold this against me, that my grandparents on my father's side were first cousins as well. You can write it off. That explains Harvey's eccentricities or stupidities, <laughs> but there you go. Okay. So FDR, Hudson River Gentry, literally on the Hudson River, on an estate in Hyde Park, New York, which to this day is associated with FDR because that's where the FDR library is. If you ever get a chance to visit it, if you're in New York, take a train up to Poughkeepsie, get an Uber or a cab, preferably a cab maybe, and go up to Hyde Park a few miles north of the city. And you can even have a great lunch while you're there at the Culinary Institute of America, which is sits in between Poughkeepsie and Hyde Park. Okay, so grew up as Hudson River Gentry. Was sent to prep school. I can't remember how it's pronounced. It was either Groton or Groton over in Connecticut is my recollection. And he would go on to Harvard University and Columbia University Law School. Now, it really is the case that he always said, maybe exaggerating a bit, that he felt that he grew up with a commitment to democracy because his own family had that kind of commitment. They probably also had commitments to a hell of a lot of money making, but that's a different story altogether. He's not part of the nouveau riche of the 20th century. He's not from an industrialist family. It was just old money, the kind of money that goes all the way back to the age of the Mayflower, you might say. That's the kind of money we're talking about. Where he grows up is essentially a Republican area of New York State. And yet, in 1912, he ran for the state Senate and was elected, probably to a great number of people's surprise. I'm not exactly sure that the Democrats even won control of the state at that point, but he won his seat in the state Senate. Now, he ran as a Democrat, and at that point, he kind of, he did identify with the capital P progressives in the Democratic Party. He would align himself with the likes of Al Smith, who would later run for president as the first Catholic, and with Robert Wagner, who would become one of the greatest senators in American history. And in the 1930s, Wagner of New York, La Follette Jr. of Wisconsin, and Norris of Nebraska were the three really dynamic New Dealers, even though two of them were not Democrats. La Follette and Norris were what used to be called progressive Republicans, pretty much standing outside of the party by the 1930s, just standing as progressives. He won in 1910. He held the seat. And in 1912, of course, that was the time that Woodrow Wilson won the presidency and would go on to hold the presidency for two terms. And in 1914, I've, thereabouts, 1930, 1914, Wilson would ask the young Roosevelt if he would join the cabinet as the assistant secretary of the Navy. In those days, there was no defense department. There was a war department, which was essentially the secretary of the army, and there was a naval department, secretary of the Navy. They eventually, they'd be consolidated. And he goes to serve assistant secretary of the Navy, which is very important because it, he was given responsibility, really, when, the, when for 1914 and 15, as the world is entering World War I, of building up 
the American Navy. And when war comes, he will be the primary figure in building the Navy for the United States. Now, let me make it clear. He did not want to be that figure. He wanted to serve in the Navy during World War I. And he requested permission to leave his, his post and go into the service. Wilson said, no, you're far more valuable here because he was doing a remarkable job. He was working well, not only with the industrial manufacturers of, the, of shipping and, and armaments and all of that, he was also working very closely with the unions and doing a damn good job of it. So he learned a lot in good part about how to, how to administer, how to run things, but also how to work with labor which will be very important, we will see, in the 1930s. In 1920, after World War I comes to an end, he is actually nominated and runs alongside of the nominee for the Democratic Party. He runs as the vice presidential nominee. He learns a real lesson here, not just how to run on a national ticket, but even more importantly, what he learns is how the Republicans will try to lay claim to the flag, to wrap themselves in the flag, and basically accuse the Democrats of being subversives almost. Why? Woodrow Wilson had called for a League of Nations. The Democratic Party ran its campaign in support of Wilson's idea of a League of Nations. The Republicans charged the Democrats with willing to give up American sovereignty to this League. And Roosevelt, as he, as he said to himself, I think he even wrote at some point, they, they wrapped themselves in the flag. And he learned never to let that happen to him again, to be outdone by the Republicans in patriotic terms. This will all come up. I hope people are listening to all of our episodes on FDR, because this will come back, and maybe I'll try to remind them when we do get to the 1930s, and especially to the World War II period. Here's the thing, okay? FDR loses, obviously, he does not become vice president, and he decides that he's going to commit himself to writing a new history of the United States. This is curious. You'd say, well, he's a politician. He's not a not a writer. However, his two presidential heroes were Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Both of them had written histories. And I convinced, I think it's pretty evident that he wants to model himself after these two winners of the presidency. So he sits down to write. The problem is he's not either Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson. And by the way, he's far better than both of them politically, as far as I'm concerned, but he just doesn't have it in him to write that history. So I think he ends up writing one chapter and puts it aside. And then, of course, his life is utterly undone, it seemed, when he's stricken with polio in 1921. There is no recovery from polio in that sense, but he will never, no matter how hard he tries, no matter how many therapies he pursues, no matter how much energy he puts into his own recovery, he will never walk again without aid. People will see him walking, but it's always in arm with either one of his sons or an important political aide or military officer. Otherwise, he is wheelchair bound. There are movies which portray him having stood up on hearing of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It's bullshit. Okay. He could not have done that. He would, however, walk aided by wearing very, very utterly weighty and uncomfortable leg braces. So he could mimic walking is a way of putting it. And yet this very same man who was stricken with polio will go on to become the most vibrant and dynamic political figure in 20th century American history. That should be known. Also, he, he gives a good deal of time to trying to enable others stricken with polio to try to overcome the polio. He bought a, an old resort down in Georgia, Warm Springs, Georgia, 
and he uses it as his own retreat, but he also turns it into a retreat for children and adults who have been stricken with polio and gives a great deal to what would later become known as the March of Dimes, the battle against polio. So FDR is in the making, you might say. Let me add one other thing. This is important. When he's stricken with polio, in a way, it liberates Eleanor Roosevelt because Roosevelt's ambitions means that he needs someone who will always be out there and bringing back what's going on during the 20s in particular, when he's really at first sort of stricken and contained in his movements. She is liberated and she ends up joining various organizations in Manhattan, in New York City, one of which will be really important to FDR's development. She joins the Women's Trade Union League and becomes very close friends. Keep in mind, she's from the elite. She becomes very close friends with a cohort of Jewish, immigrant Jewish, socialist and Italian in some cases, labor organizers in the textile industry. And what she does is she brings these women back to Hyde Park to meet FDR. And he learns from them. He already knows about labor unionism, but he learns from them about the trials and tribulations of immigrant families across the country and most especially in New York City. So they educate him as to the imperative of not only labor unionism, which he's already somewhat aware of, but also the imperative of public action to empower and enable working families to move on and move up. A famous name from that cohort was Rose Schneiderman, who Eleanor was especially close to and would remain close to. I thought it'd be good if we could look at a speech of 1912. What Hartzell and I are using to, to make this possible, to have these words, is a book that I wrote or edited, or perhaps a good way of putting it is curated, that came out a couple of years ago. FDR on democracy. To my mind, the most important speeches that FDR gave on democracy. They're not all of his speeches. It's not an ad hoc collection. I'm not trying to cover all the bases. I want to reveal by excerpting and editing these speeches, just how committed from the very beginning FDR is to democracy. And at this first speech we're going to look at that he gave in March of 1912, and this was a talk that he gave not long after winning the seat. This is in 1912. This is before he's going to enter the cabinet. This is during the 1912 presidential election year. And he gives this speech, I've titled it, We Have Acquired a New Set of Conditions Which We Must Seek to Solve. He gave this to the People's Forum, a progressive group in New York. I, I can't decide if it's given in Troy, New York and repeated down in New York City, or if there was one or two or three different outlets for the People's Forum. What's important is that 1912, FDR is seeking a way forward intellectually and politically. To what extent he will be, if you like, a radical progressive, a progressive, what's going to be his political philosophy? And we hear it in this speech, this thinking out loud that he does. In this speech, and it's longer than we're, we're going to provide you with, he says along the way, during the past century, we have acquired a new set of conditions which we must seek to solve. To put it in the simplest and fewest words, I have called this new theory, and this sounds awkward, but it's very interesting to pay attention. He says, I've called this new theory the struggle for liberty of the community rather than liberty of the individual. And I'm going to hand it over to Hartzell in just a second. I want to really make a point here. He's trying to figure out how the public good can be elevated, if not just to equal the idea of individualism, individual liberty, but perhaps raised to a more prominent place in public life in America. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Hartzell, to take up these words that follow. 
To state it plainly, competition has been shown to be useful up to a certain point. But cooperation, which is the thing that we must strive for today, begins where competition leaves off. This was what the founders of the Republic were groping for. So it is in New York State today. We are beginning to see that it is necessary for health and happiness that the rights of individuals that lumber companies may not do as they please with the wooded growths of the Catskills and the Adirondack. This is FDR, the conservationist. He would be a great president to confront the climate crisis. I want to make that very clear, okay? Well, he speaks in the next paragraph, at least in the text, of a, of a picture, of a picture from China, of a walled city. And now he's going to make use of that picture as he explains what he means. Hartzell, take it back. Today, the picture shows the walled town almost as it stood 500 years ago. But there is not a human being within the walls, and but few in the whole region. Rows upon rows of bare ridges and mountains stretch back from the city without a vestige of life. Everything is in dilapidated condition, and this is all due to the liberty of the individual. This is what will happen in this very state. The individuals are allowed to do as they please with the natural resources to line their own pockets during their life. With them, the motto is, after us, the deluge. They do not care what happens after they are gone and even do not care what happens to their neighbors. There is, to my mind, no valid reason why the food supply of the nation should not be put on the most economical and at the same time the most productive basis by carrying out cooperation. If we call the method regulation, people hold up their hands in horror and say un-American or dangerous. But if we call the same identical process cooperation, these same old fogies will cry out, well done. And he continues, he says, it may seem absurd to call the rebating formerly done by railroads and the great trust so-called minor issues. But after all, rebating was discrimination and the doctrine of cooperation came with it. The same with trusts, the big corporate trusts. They were, were and are run on the theory of monopoly. But cooperations puts monopoly out of date. And we now understand that the mere size of a trust is not of necessity, it's evil. The trust is evil because it monopolizes for a few. And as long as this keeps up, it will be necessary for a community to change its features. So this is FDR trying to work out what I think will eventually be a politics that he didn't call exactly what I'll, what I'll term it, but should be called social democracy. Later in, in the 1920s, there were two pieces that I included in the book, FDR and Democracy, that I think are very telling of where FDR is going, both in terms of his own personal ambitions and in terms of his political ambitions for America his grander ambitions for America. Now, in 1925, late 1925, he was asked to review a new book by Claude Bowers titled Jefferson and Hamilton. Now, Bowers himself was one of the leading, if you like, capital D Democratic Party intellectuals, a historian, a Jeffersonian. I'm not sure what his, well, I have a feeling he was probably something of a racist, but nevertheless, that's a different story. He was committed, as was FDR, to a kind of grassroots democracy. And in this book, he reviews the grand battle between Jeffersonian and Hamilton's. And he takes the side of Jefferson versus Hamilton. I'll repeat, Hamilton associated with the making of capitalism in America, Jefferson with the making of democracy in America. Now, in this review, among the things he says is the history of the United States may be interesting to some for the mere fact of events or personalities, but it is of value to us as a whole because of the application we make of these facts, those facts, to present problems. He's talking here in his review about 
the way in which two parties began to emerge in the, in the 1790s. One, for lack of a better way of putting it, the Democrat Republicans. That was what they were called, the Jeffersonians. The other, aligned with around Hamilton and Adams, who themselves hated each other, were known as the Federalists. FDR writes, it is natural that in this environment of the 1790s, the demarcation into parties grew apace. Jefferson, who was eclipsed in the cabinet by Hamilton, was the natural Democrat against the natural aristocrat, meaning Hamilton. The point is that these were very, very critical times. And Jefferson ends up getting pushed in a, what you would call a small d democratic direction versus the Federalists. But what's really going on in FDR's mind is revealed in his final paragraph. While he's aligning himself with Jefferson, it's not only because he wants to associate himself with small d democracy against the corporate powers that be, it's also something going on regarding what his own future is. And I'll hand it over to Hartzell to read this last paragraph. I have a breathless feeling as I lay down this book, a picture of escape after escape, which this nation passed through in those first 10 years, a picture of what might have been if the Republic had been finally organized, as Alexander Hamilton saw it. But I have a breathless feeling, too, as I wonder if, a century and a quarter later, the same contending forces are not again mobilizing. Hamilton's we have today is a Jefferson on the horizon. When he asked that question, is a Jefferson on the horizon when he's posing the possibility that there are small d Democrats versus the interests of corporate capitalism. And he says, is a Jefferson on the horizon? You can bet that he's asking himself, will I be able to emerge from the polio and the constraints it affords? Will I be able to emerge in such a way that Americans will overlook my disability that I can run for president? That's clearly the question on his mind. Now, not long after, about six months after, he's invited to speak at Milton Academy. In fact, he's invited to come to Milton Academy for a few days and give a closing talk to the students. Now, Milton Academy was a prep school, so he's going to be talking to what we would call teenagers. And in this speech, which he titles, Wither Bound, a speech to Milton Academy in Milton, Massachusetts on May 18, 1926, he is going to say, basically, that I have great hopes in you young people. Now, he's still relatively young at this point, but he's willing to identify himself as old because he knows who he's talking to. And he warns against America getting hung up or held back by old fogies who just do not know how to respond to the opportunities and the changes taking place in America. But really, he's also talking to these young people without pointing a finger directly at the Republicans, and for that matter, reactionary Southern Democrats. It gives them, if you like, a warning about what Americans have to do, and if they fail to do it, will lead possibly to a destructive future for the nation. So Hartzell, why don't you read a little piece of that? Measured by years, the actual control of human affairs is in the hand of conservatives for longer periods than in those of liberals or radicals. When the latter do come into power, they translate the constantly working lever of progress into law or custom or use, but rarely obtain enough time in control to make further economic or social experiments. None of us, therefore, need feel surprised that the government of our own country, for instance, is conservative by far the greater part of the time. Our national danger is, however, not that it may for four years or eight years become liberal or even radical, but that it may suffer from too long a period of the do-nothing or reactionary standards. Yeah, this, is, this is FDR telling these young people, I look forward to the day when you can pursue a true 
democratic progressive politics. He doesn't quite say it, but he's also implying throughout his talk that he hopes to be a significant player in those democratic politics. I'm just going to add something which we hadn't mentioned before to ourselves. I want to read this last bit to people. I think it's important in the times in which we live. I see many rays of pure light in that future, Roosevelt says. I see not merely materialism, new inventions, new conditions, new words. I see something spiritual coming to you who will take part. Service to mankind has been much taught of late. And this word service is, like the material thing, still in its infancy of development. True service will not come until all the world recognizes all the rest of the world as one big family. To help a fellow being just because he is a fellow being is not enough. We treat that help too much as a duty, too little as an interest. How many of us lend helping hands to people we do not like, people who do not belong to our crowd? people whom we subconsciously hope we may never see again. This old world of ours, he says, is still suffering from an ancient disease known as class consciousness. Now, he's not talking about working class consciousness. He's talking about the class consciousness of the ruling class, okay? And their disinterest, basically, in the greater people. I'm convinced of that. I have no, no question about it. He has no idea there's going to come this Great Depression though he fears the possibility of some kind of events such as the Great Depression utterly undoing the nation because of the fact that he sees conservatives in control, and if they're in control too long, the destruction will come. So, Professor K, I guess as we close up episode one of FDR Month, I'm curious, and, and we've already said it many times, you know, Biden is not going full FDR. But for some reason, I think the correct reason, he chose FDR as the figure he wanted to follow because of the connotations that are associated with FDR, right? Those connotations are a radical social democrat. It is investing in us. It's social spending. If in 2022 now we can all pretty much agree that FDR was not just a good president. He was a great transformational president. Why is he not honing in on that if he's going to say he's going to hone in on that? My thinking is we should leave it there. Your question stands as the close of the episode. Professor Harvey K., my brother, my comrade, where are we going to take it next week? Okay, so where do we go next? I'll tell you where we're going to go next. We're going to go to FDR, the governor, who's on his way to becoming a social democrat, who will run as a social democrat. He called himself a liberal, but he gave a whole new meaning to liberalism and will address the New Deal. And then in later weeks, we'll talk about the buildup to the war and closed likely on the Economic Bill of Rights and his call for voting rights for all. And we will say this, January 6th, while it is now a day that will live in infamy, do a Google search, deep dive what also happened on January 6th. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about that. Week three. Week three. My brother, Professor Harvey K., is it a good day to take back America, sir? It's always a good day to take back America. One last thing. If anybody wants to look for me, I'm on Twitter at Harvey JK. If anybody wants to read my most recent kinds of stuff, I do recommend FDR and Democracy. If you're really interested in a deep dive on FDR, and I hope you are, and The Greatest Generation, go get a copy of The Fight for the Four Freedoms. What made FDR and The Greatest Generation truly great? It's the pump-up speech at halftime that I think we need right now in this moment. Yes, absolutely. And FDR and Democracy, if y'all grab that book, you can follow along with us. These actual speeches that you went ahead and curated, they can go ahead and follow along with us every week. Right. And then they could always complain that we left out some good stuff. <laughs> Professor K, I love you, brother. We'll chat next week. You bet. Looking forward to it. 
to one place, right to Kansas City. The KC Morning Show. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.